Well, good morning again. Hard to believe this is our third and final time uh, that we're with you folks. It's just amazing how quickly time goes by. Um, needless to say, uh, it's kind of disappointing to think this is the last time we'll be with you for some time. Who knows why we only may be the last time. Only the Lord knows those particular things. Um, but anyway, it's, it's nice to be with you today and trust that the Lord will bless our time together in his word. Uh, as you know, we've been studying the seven sayings of Christ on the cross. And we know that there were seven. Uh, I had six lessons that I could give here, so I had to combine two. And today, this morning, we're going to combine the fifth and the sixth statement because they seem to really dovetail one another very nicely. And then tonight, Lord willing, we'll look at the seventh and final saying of Christ on the cross. And we mentioned right from the very outset, you know, all of us kind of know what the seven things are. But I would venture to say the vast majority of us, and that included myself until I was asked to speak on this at a conference uh, a few years ago, uh, that I had to sit down and really study and meditate on these seven statements. And it was amazing how it really touched my heart, you know. We, we know these little statements and we read them and don't think an awful lot about them. And yet they're recorded for a reason because they're all very precious when you stop and consider the price that the Lord Jesus Christ paid, what he endured, and how he expressed certain things. And the fact that he picked these seven things to say in itself means they must be extremely significant. And the one we have before us to begin with this morning is in John chapter 19, verse 28. John chapter 19, verse 28. And I'll be very honest, even as I used to go through and read the Gospels, and read about the crucifixion and all that led up to the crucifixion. And I looked at these seven statements. The one that I kind of dismissed, I know that doesn't sound right. It's not that I didn't ignore it totally. But the one that I kind of dismissed as being the least important was this one. And it's because it just simply says in this verse, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. I thirst. Now, when you think about those two little words by themselves, you know, compared to the other things that he said, you know, I sometimes think I'm not the only one who is guilty of thinking, well, you know, this one probably isn't as important as all the others. But you know, the bottom line is the very fact that this is recorded as one of the seven sayings from the cross intimates that this is a very precious word, a very precious word, a word that is to be treasured in our hearts and, of course, deserving prolonged meditation. Now, the time we have allotted today uh, it's not going to be prolonged. It'll probably be more prolonged than most of you have taken time to really stop and consider it. 
But I'll tell you, I spent hours and hours and hours dealing with just this little phrase, I thirst. You know, here we see another fulfillment of the many scriptures concerning Christ's humanity and deity. And of course, this particular statement was uh, prophesied in Psalm 69, verse 21, and it's also reiterated here in verse 29. So let's just read verse 29. Now, a, a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. In ver in, and that's what's quoted in Psalm 69. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. That is a prophetic statement concerning what was taking place here. And now it was being once again fulfilled as he hung on the cross. And I just want to refresh your minds very briefly about the fact that everything we have talked about and everything that took place was prophetically predicted in the Old Testament scriptures. And I'm just going to give you a couple uh, just to make a point as we move along. In Psalm 41.9, we are told that he would be betrayed by a friend. That took place in Luke 22.48. In Psalm 31.11, his disciples would be offended and would forsake him. That was fulfilled in Mark 14.50. In Isaiah 53.9, it was said he would be proven guiltless. That was fulfilled in Luke 23, 4. I find no fault with this man. Psalm 109, 25 speaks that he would receive the mockery of the spectators. That was fulfilled in Mark 15, verse 31. In Psalm 22, 7 and 8, we read that he would be taunted of not being delivered. In other words, come down from the cross if you be the Son of God. Fulfilled in Mark chapter 15, verse 36. In Psalm 28, 18, it speaks to the fact that they would be gambling for his garments. That was fulfilled in Mark 15, 24. And of course, in addition, there's the ones that we've already mentioned and talked about. Two of them in Isaiah 53, 12. He was numbered with the transgressors, the two thieves on his side. He would make intercession for prayer for his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In Psalm 22, 1, his being forsaken by God. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, we dealt with that just in our little series. And now here in Psalm 29, verse 21, or 67, verse 21, it speaks of his thirsting, which is fulfilled here in John 19, verses 28 and 29. Now, I couldn't help but think as I went through all of these things, you know, 1 Timothy 3.16 says this, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. And there's no more vivid evidence of his being in the flesh than what took place while he was hanging on that cross and all that proceeded before it. Now, 
as we look at this, we can't go into the detail I normally would have done had we been able to take uh, the whole time. But I do want to emphasize, you know, he was forever God, and now forever man. He was the God-man. Very evident as we go through these. The one born in Bethlehem was the divine word that became flesh. And we know from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 and verse 14, the word who was God, who was with God, who was God. He's the one who became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Verse 14, and we beheld his glory, his moral glory, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And, of course, the glory we beheld there was his moral glory, his holiness, fully God, fully man, has been demonstrated in Scripture. Yes, this brief statement truly reflects Jesus Christ's deity, and it reflects his humanity and his complete fulfillment of God's word as both. Now, a few other things I just want to draw our attention to here. In this statement, I thirst, it also reveals the intensity of Christ's sufferings. Just how intense they really were. You know, we read through the Gospels, and we visualize a little bit. It tells us, and each Gospel emphasizes a little bit different point, but by the time you put them all together, you have this glorious picture of the intensity of the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, even though we can't understand these things fully, and don't ever think that you can, we can never understand fully and appreciate Christ's sufferings. But there's two prophetic passages I want us to take a look at that gives us a glimpse of the intensity of his sufferings. The first one is in Psalm 32. Either turn to it or you can just make a, mark it down or listen. But in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, we read these words. When I kept silent, my bones grew old. Through my groaning all the day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer, Selah. Now go to Lamentations, if you would. The book of Lamentations. In chapter 1, verse 12. Is it nothing to you? All you who pass by, behold and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which has been brought on me, which the Lord has inflicted in the day of his fierce anger. From above, he has set fire into my bones, and it overpowered them. He has spread a net for my feet and turned me back. He has made me desolate and faint all the day. Somber verses, aren't they? When you stop and consider who they're referring to. You know, in addition to this, of course, as I've already mentioned, we have the four Gospels and how vividly they tell us of what took place. Now, we don't have time to go through all of those today, but I would really encourage you to go home and go through the Gospels and really meditate on what took place. Because, you see, 
we don't often think that from the time he left the Passover feast, from that moment, it all began. Starts with him in Gethsemane, sweating great drops of blood, anticipating. And then, of course, here comes the soldiers with Judas, the betrayal. And, you know, the events go on and on and on. And, you know, as you read through those and really meditate on them, you'll find there was no break. It was from that point, the rest of the day, through the night, into the next day. All of these things were constantly taking place. The number of times he was beaten, the number of things he went through, the thorns that were placed on his head, you know, everything. You have to take time. Do you really stop to think about it? Remember, what is our little statement today? I thirst. And I want to just pick up where we're now at Golgotha or Calvary. See, I'm not going to go through all those things in the Gospels. I don't have time to do that. You do. And I would encourage you to do it. But I'm going to pick up at the time now he's at Golgotha. And the reason I'm doing that is it says there, that they offered him a drink of vinegar in Matthew 27, 33, and 34, and gall as a means to dull his senses, but he refused. This is the only evidence we have in Scripture that he was offered anything to drink. During this whole period of time, just think about that. The suffering and pain and agony he was going through the literal torture. And the only time it mentions he was given something to drink was vinegar and gall to dull his senses. You know, it's kind of like a painkiller to help relieve the pain. But he refused it. He refused it. You see, he wanted that suffering to be with full intense sensitivity because he knew this was far more than just the death of an individual. This is the first time. And then after that, for three hours, he hung on the cross in the desert sun. I never, when I was younger, never really appreciated that. I've been living in the California desert now in the, winter, in the winters for 20-some years now. Hard to believe it's been that long. And I can tell you, the desert sun is, is cruel. It just beats on you. Now, Pat and I just took a hike up to, uh, interesting, we're talking about the cross. They have a trail that takes you in the mountains up to the cross. If you go in there at night, you can see it lit up. It's beautiful at night. But the trip up there and back, we, by the time we got back, we were just plain exhausted. And it wasn't that warm out, but the sun was beating on us for two hours. And we were drained. He's now hanging after all of this stuff that took place. He's hanging on that cross in the desert sun for three hours. And then, of course, from, that, from the sixth to the ninth hour, he bore in his own body the penalty, the guilt, and the wrath of God for the sin of all mankind. Okay? This is leading us up to the event which we're talking about, this statement this morning. You see, up to this point, he had not opened his mouth in anguish concerning his suffering except acknowledging 
is being forsaken by God. And we looked at that last time we were here. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And now we have the words. He speaks, I thirst. <laughs> you know, but see, even in these two words, it brought him additional mockery and suffering. Because again, what do they offer him? Vinegar brought to his lips. Well, nobody's going to drink vinegar. Have you ever tried to drink vinegar? You see, even there, it was torment and cruelty. In John chapter 19, verse 28, it reveals the Lord spoke these words. Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, what scripture? Psalm 69, 21. He said, I thirst. Now this should just give you a little bit more of an idea how precious these words really are. The suffering. But you know, as I thought about this, it may be suggested, and I want you to understand I said suggested. It may be suggested that something other than physical thirst is brought before us here. I mean, obviously he was thirsty physically. But it's suggested there might be something in addition to that. Uh, go to Psalm 42, if you would. Psalm 42. We're going to read the first three verses. <clears throat> Keeping in mind, we're suggesting that there's something other than physical thirst is being brought before us here. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? It's interesting in some translations, the last part of what I have just read, which is read, I see the face of God. My soul thirsted for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear and see the face of God? Now, is it possible? Again, just a suggestion. Is it possible that his soul was thirsting to once again be in fellowship with God? He was forsaken by God. We can, we'll never understand that. Uh, but for three hours, he was totally separated by God. What that was like, we'll never know. And when I say we'll never know, I'm talking to those here who are born-again believers. You must be born again. We just got through saying you must be born anew. You must have Christ in your life when you pass from time into eternity. 
And for those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, we will never know what it is to be forsaken by God. No one in the world today knows what it is to be forsaken by God. You can take the wickedest, wickedest people you can find on the face of this earth who will literally curse the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They have still not been forsaken by God in this world. His presence is here. And whether they acknowledge or not, God is blessing them in many ways and working at them seeking to draw him to themselves. But you know, if you pass from time into the eternity, and you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ because you never accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, what is he going to say to you? Depart from me, I never knew you. What is spiritual death? is separation from God. You know, people often say, well, hell must be going to be a terrible place. You know, I think of the fire and all that stuff. Yeah, I guess that would be terrible. I'm not sure that would be the most terrible. I think the mind might get involved, thinking of all those opportunities. You know, I've witnessed to a lot of people who had wanted nothing to do with it. Well, I have a feeling if they end up in a Christless eternity, they will remember every opportunity they had over and over and over again. Why didn't I respond? But I don't think that's even going to be the worst if that's even a part of it. Forsaken by God. See, separated from God. The Lord Jesus Christ was separated from God judicially for three hours. Can you imagine being God himself and now being separated? How he must have thirsted once again to be in that fellowship with the Godhead, his rightful place. You know, as you think about these blessed words, May our spirit, I mean, the spirit of God give us a true glimpse of the intense suffering that Christ endured to reconcile us to himself. May we also give us a greater understanding and appreciation for our Savior's statement, I thirst. And maybe help us see how blessed our Lord Jesus Christ can be in sympathizing with those of us who belong to him. You know, sometimes we get that feeling, oh, why did the Lord let this happen to me? <laughs> the Lord knows full well what's going on. He can sympathize. He understands. He has been through so much more than you can ever imagine yourself going through. I don't know what lies ahead for me. The Lord does. But I'm confident of one thing. He understands whatever it will be. He will sympathize. He will be with me. He's promised. He will never forsake his own in any way or form. Oh, praise God for these little, two little words. I thirst. Go home and meditate on them a little longer. Moving on to number six. 
We just have to go down one verse from John 28 and 29. So when Jesus had received, which means they put it to his lips, he didn't take it, he said, it is finished. It is finished. The last two statements we emphasized before today of the tragedy of the cross was, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The second one was one we just mentioned, I thirst. But this statement focuses on the triumph and the victory of the cross. It has been said the cross of Christ has two great sides to it. It showed the profound depths of his humiliation, but it also marked the goal of the incarnation, and further it told the consummation of his mission, and it forms the basis of our salvation. Why do we have a great salvation? Because of these words of Christ on the cross. It is finished. Blessed words. And we take just a few moments to look at these. In the original, it is finished is really only one word. And yet, in that one word is wrapped up the gospel of God. The whole gospel of God is written and wrapped up in this one word. It's the ground of the believer's assurance. You know, if this was never uttered, what assurance would we have of anything? It's finished. And it's the peace and the joy that is ours that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it is finished. What is finished? What was he referring to when he said it is finished? Well, primarily, of course, is Christ's sacrificial, substitutionary, atoning death or work for the sin of all mankind. Now, yes, I know it includes his entire life you know, from the time he came into the world, even leaving riches, the riches of glory to come into this earth. <laughs> it started, you know, before the foundation of the world. He was already reconciling us unto himself. But you see, it, it includes all the things we talked about before, the sufferings prior to going to Calvary or Golgotha. All the things that took place at Golgotha, at Calvary right on through the ninth hour. However, you see, what is really at focus here, his sacrificial work for sin in enduring God's judicial judgment and wrath that you and I deserve fell upon him and it resulted in his being forsaken by God from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. And it seems pretty clear that when that cry came out, what was finished? The work that God sent him to do. To make it possible, as we talked about at the Lord's table this morning, to be reconciled to a holy and a righteous God. What had to be done to make that possible took place from the sixth to the ninth hour. 
And everything else pales in comparison to that. We're not belittling or bemoaning that what took place as not being that important. Oh, it was all important. But these three hours where he was separated from God, where he bore the sin of the whole world, the wrath of God was poured out upon him. He was forsaken by God. At the end of the ninth hour, he cried out, it is finished. Now, why did he say that after he said, I thirst? Well, because all scripture had to be fulfilled before it would be finished. And something as simple as this little phrase, if you go back and meditate on what we did the first part of this hour, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. He said, I thirst. Everything that had been foretold that must happen had now happened, and now he could say, and I think he shouted out, it is finished, the work he was sent to do. I mean, this is one, again, you really have to go home and meditate on a great deal. You know, it's interesting again to note that centuries beforehand, the prophets of God had described step by step the humiliation, the suffering, this being forsaken by God in death, the coming Savior would undergo. The Old Testament is filled with it. But I just want to leave you with a few passages, and we're not going to read them, but I'm just going to mention that makes it easy for you to go to these and just check them out. Isaiah, starting with chapter 52, verse 11, through chapter 53, verse 12, is just loaded with prophetic statements that were all fulfilled. Psalm 22, just go home and read it, anticipating. These are prophetic scriptures that were fulfilled at his first coming. Psalm 69, 4, one you may not often think of, so you may want to jot that one down. But go, it's, it's very interesting verse that summarizes so vividly all these things that took place. But you see, all of these uh, prophetic passages that took place centuries before, every last one, one by one, in every detail, were completed. And why do I bring that to your contention? Well, I think it's worth noting. You see, as we see the actual fulfillment of all these prophecies that were foretold in the Old Testament, being fulfilled to the very letter in the Lord's first coming, we can rest assured that all the prophecies that speak of his second coming. And there are a lot of them. They too will be fulfilled. Every last one of them. It's comforting to know. <laughs> you know, that's why it's important to read the Old Testament, my dear brothers and sisters. It is. Yeah, some of it's tough to go through, I understand. So what? 
Just because it's tough doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. But do it. And then as you go into the New Testament and you see all of these things being fulfilled, it will encourage your heart. Oh, are we living in terrible, wicked times? Yeah. We shouldn't be surprised. <laughs> you see, since the Lord has gone back to glory, there's all kinds of prophecies that tell us why we're at where we're at. The coming of the Lord is getting closer. How do we know that? There's all kinds of prophecies that are already in the process of being fulfilled. Some have been. Many more are going to be. And ultimately, the greatest one, to me at the moment, I'm looking for the rapture because I'm going to be with the Lord. I'm confident that's going to happen. Now, whether I'll be alive at the rapture is really not important. What's important is it's going to happen. <laughs> I'm going to be changed and in glory because God's word says it. And it will happen. See, all the promises of God are yea and amen through the Lord Jesus Christ. Another thing I just want to mention, we have a little time here to do this. The phrase, it is finished, declares the completion of his sufferings. The completion of his sufferings. See, praise God. Now the suffering has ended. The dishonor and shame, the suffering and the agony are past for him. Never again will he experience pain, endure the contradiction of sinners against himself, be in the hand of Satan, and never again shall the light of God's countenance be hidden from him. Why? It is finished. Hebrews 10, verse 7. And this verse amazes me the more you meditate on all of these things. We read there, he says, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. He voluntarily came to do the will of God. And now it is finished. In Acts chapter 2, verses 23 and 20, in chapter 4, verse 28, we're told everything that took place concerning the Lord Jesus Christ's earthly ministry was in accordance with the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. You know, this statement, I want you to take it the right way. Man had nothing to do with any of this. All of this was done by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Yes, man would be a part of bringing this to pass. But you know, those who thought they were really doing something so great and unique and putting him to death, they had nothing to do with it. See, God had determined before the foundation of the world that we would be reconciled to God through the person and the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, yes, he used various means to bring that to pass. 
But that's why God became flesh and dwelt among us. Yes, we beheld his glory, his moral glory. But we also know from Scripture the reason he came was to do the will of the Father, the will of God, in dying for the man, all mankind. In Galatians 4, 4, and 5, I guess just turn to that for a moment. There are two verses you really know. They're read almost all the time at Christmas. I just want it to be in front of you because we know what it says there that uh, when the fullness of time had come, the right time had come, God sent forth his son to be born of a woman under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. All right? Now there's two words or phrases I just want to focus on. What was the result of this particular passage? Well, first of all, it was to redeem us. He came to redeem us. What does it mean to redeem? Well, I know the simple answer is, well, to buy back. I'm not satisfied with just to buy back. To me, as I look at my own life, what happened when he redeemed me? He took me out of the position I was in. Lost, hopeless, an enemy, an alien, without Christ, without God, in this world with no hope whatsoever, and bound for a Christless eternity. That's what I was at one time. When he redeemed me, he took me out of that position and placed me into another position, a position now where I am, a child of God by nature, First John tells us that. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God, children of God by nature. Next verse says, and such we are. And of course, in this passage, it tells us we have been adopted as sons with all the privileges that go along with being a full-fledged child of God. That's redemption. That's what he did. He came to redeem me. Take me out of this position and place me in this one over here. Praise God. I'm over here. I have no right to be over here. But I am. And every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is in that position as well. The second little phrase is under the law. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. The curse of the law. Was the law itself a curse? No. There was nothing wrong with God's law. It was perfect. It revealed what he was like. And what he expected. What's the curse? The curse was we could not obey it. We could not live by it. And therefore, it became a curse to us because it doomed us to a lost eternity. But praise God, he came to redeem us from the curse of the law. And how did he do that? He was made a curse 
for us. He bore the curse of the law for us. And we don't have to. What a marvelous thought. In 1 John 4.10, now here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. Big word simply means that which satisfies God. He's a propitiation for my sins. He's the one who satisfied God for my sin. He bore my penalty, my guilt, my wrath that I deserved in his own body on Calvary's tree. See, no wonder. When it was all after the things were done, I thirst. He said, it is finished. And one final thought. Hebrews 2.14 we read, Christ has destroyed him that hath the power of death, that is the devil. You see, for the Christian, the devil is a defeated foe. Do you understand that? He's a defeated foe. Scripture tells us, point blank, greater is he who is in you, who is, which is who? The Holy Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of Christ. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in this world. Well, you know who the prince and the power of this world is? God gave him the right to do that. That's the only reason he is. And he's, he's hard at work. We know he's hard at work. You know, praise God. He has no effect on those who belong to Christ. You know, I sometimes think we forget that. You know, we try to bl blame the devil for all kinds of things if we do something wrong. Well, get over it. It's not the devil. He can't make you do anything. He doesn't have that power over you. If you've fallen into sin, it's you. It's me who has brought that about. See, I begin to yield to this old nature of mine instead of the divine nature that is within me now as a child of God, if I just turn it over to him, I wouldn't have fallen into that sin. That would not have happened. And, of course, it also deals with the aspect of death, and, of course, we're going to be getting into that tonight on the seventh statement, Father, into thy hands I commit thy spirit, my spirit. But, you know, we're told in Scripture in James 4, 7 that we are to resist the devil knowing he will flee. If you resist him, he will flee. And, of course, how do you resist him? Well, you have to go to Ephesians 6, 11 through 18. He says, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And that what follows. Clothe yourself in the whole armor of God that ye be able to stand and withstand and resist the wiles of the evil one. Oh, yes, he will try to inflict his influence and power upon us. But, you know, if you're clothed in that armor and that one offensive weapon is that word of God and you slam that in his face, 
He'll flee. He'll flee. He knows he has no power over those who are in Christ Jesus. But we have to take God's word at heart. And when we're told to clothe ourselves in the whole armor of God, be sure you are. If you don't remember what those are, well, then I suggest you go home and meditate in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. And make sure every moment of every day you leave all of those pieces of armor on. All but one protective, one offensive weapon, and that's the word of God. Well, some concluding thoughts here. I guess, basically, I just want to say, truly, the work of Christ, that the work of Christ came to do, the work of atonement, it is finished. Praise the Lord for that. Tonight, Lord willing, we'll look at the seventh one. And boy, that's a cheery one. I mean, they're all good. But the one tonight really should bring joy, even more joy than this, because this is the result of the fact that it is finished. And that is, today, her Father, into thy hand, I commit my spirit. Hopefully, you'll be able to come out. Shall we pray? Our gracious God and dear Heavenly Father, we do need to thank you and praise you again for your beloved Son, and our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for these two statements that we looked at this morning that were uttered by our blessed Lord and Savior. I thirst, and well he might have, for all the suffering he endured. But also he uttered it because it was a fulfillment of the scriptures. And we rejoice in the fact that he could claim Boldly, it is finished. The atoning work of Christ, that which can reconcile us to God, that which propitiated our Heavenly Father, has been completed. Forever done, the work of redemption. We thank you for these blessed truths revealed to us in Scripture. May we rejoice in them. Part us now with your blessing. Bring us to our various homes in safety and out again this evening, if it be your will. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.